Hello, and welcome to the next edition of Pazina Perspectives. This is Bill Lipsy, president of Pazina Investment Management. I'm here today with my partner, our chief executive officer, chief inve co-chief investment officer, and founder of our firm, Rich Pazina. Good morning, Rich. Good morning, Bill. Um, this is, Rich, this is the, the third time you and I have sat together uh, on a podcast since we've been locked in our homes during this coronavirus period. And um, I have to say, I don't really think before this happened, I thought we were going to be regulars on podcasts, but um, I'm kind of getting used to it. Let me, let me start this morning with uh, the, the subject of our conversation. What I thought we might talk about is a subject that I think is on everybody's mind, and that is, does value work anymore? You know, we've gone through now in our 25 years, three very distinct experiences of extreme volatility and extreme anti-value market sentiment. The coronavirus period is, has accelerated this current, um, the, the current version of that. And it, it's, it's making me think a lot about the questions that, that we get asked every time this happens. Does value work, like I said? What, what are the, what's, what's gonna cause value to work again, if it will? Um, do, does deep value, the way we practice it, actually reflect a much riskier approach to investing? You know, these, this is what we hear from clients and consultants all the time. And so I thought we'd start with, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how you define risk. Well, risk is, to me, risk is a fairly simple concept. Risk is losing money. Now, academics have tried to turn it into a statistical metric. And the metric of choice is volatility or the standard deviation of returns. Now that was always curious to me because standard deviation is just things going up and down. And in fact, as a value investor, you get a big smile on your face, particularly when things go down because you get to buy at a lower price. So how could that possibly be risk? But it's broadly accepted that Volatility is risk. And the kind of investing that we practice has higher short-term volatility of returns than the market, even than traditional value indices. So what, so what should people do? If, if that's the case, and we know it is, right? Measuring monthly standard deviation against long-term returns, what should people do? Because they're sitting in front of investment committees who are telling them this portfolio is risky and the returns have not been good. It's a very difficult concept because what we do in practice is we look at the upside and the downside. And we look at the long-term upside and the long-term downside. We don't look at, is the stock going down next month? Because I have no idea if the stock is going down next month. But if I could, if I, if I had a case that said over a five plus year investment horizon, and by the way, 
value strategies are long-term investing strategies. I think all equity is a long-term investing strategy. I mean, the idea that you would buy stocks in your portfolio if you needed the money one month from now is about as crazy an idea as you could imagine. That's gambling. That's not investing unless you happen to know something that, that nobody else knows. But if you're taking a very long-term perspective and you want to have good returns over the long term, you would say risk is, well, what can this thing be worth in the good outcome? And what could it be worth in the bad outcome? And the key to our, and I know this is, doesn't sound like rocket science, but what we do is buy stocks where the good outcome is substantially better than the bad outcome is bad. Now, how do you measure that in statistics? If I went to an academic and said, that's what I want to do, they would say, well, you're making up all the numbers anyway, so how could you possibly do that? So, but there's a curious thing, right? Because when you go to an academic, they will tell you that monthly volatility is a good proxy for long-term volatility, for long-term risk, because the movement in the short terms are random. But when we look at it, it's very curious. When we look at our long-term volatility, and nobody uses this metric, right? If I, if I was to say to you, we've been building portfolios for 25 years. Let's say my time horizon is 10 years, which I think is a reasonable time horizon for an equity investor, certainly for a value investor. I have lots of 10-year periods that I can look at in my history. I can um, because for after 25 years, you could start a new portfolio every single month and you'd have hundreds of 10-year records to look back over. How stable are those 10-year returns? Well, it's interesting. I'll give you some, some actual statistics from our history. Our monthly volatility of our flagship Pazina-focused value strategy is 20%. That compares to the S&P 500 of 15.2. So there's a significant amount of extra short-term volatility. But when I measure the, the volatility of 10-year returns instead of monthly returns, it's curious. Ours is actually lower. And the numbers are much lower because the ups and downs in the short-term cancel each other out. So the 10-year volatility of the S&P 500 is 4.3%. And the 10-year volatility of Pazina Focus Value is 3.5%. So how is it possible that you have short-term volatility that's higher and long-term volatility that's lower? There's only two ways that that's possible. One is the ups and downs actually cancel each other out. And two, the benefit of buying for a low price translates into lower risk. It just doesn't translate into lower short-term risk. But if you're even halfway good at this and you buy things at low prices, you have lower risk. I mean, the biggest risk that anybody has, anybody in buying a stock is overpaying. And if all you do is listen to a story and buy the stock and you're not paying attention to valuation, you have a higher chance that you're gonna overpay than if you spend your time obsessing over the valuation unless you're just bad at that. Right, so, so that's, a, that's a perfect segue to the other side of the coin, right? Because 
the 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 argument that people would make is okay okay so let's let's say uh i buy your argument that we should be looking at longer periods of volatility to try and assess the riskiness of your portfolio but wait a minute wait a minute here we are uh, in the early part of July of 2020, and I look back over the last 10 years, and gee, your returns are not very good. How do you explain uh, uh, how I should look at it now? We're going to evaluate somebody over with a long-term record, which is the best way to evaluate somebody because you, you do. The problem is most people don't have long-term records that are long enough. But we're now 25 years, and we've been doing the same thing for 25 years. So if I looked at the last 10, I just happened to pick the last 10, it was pretty bad compared to the S&P 500. We were up 7.1% a year in the last 10 years. The S&P was up 13.2. That's our worst period of relative performance in our history of every 10-year period you could have picked. Now, so if you evaluate that us on that basis and you look at how volatile our short-term performance is, you'd say, let me get, get away from this. But that's so endpoint dependent. It's beginning point and endpoint dependent. Because I can find I can find a great 10-year period, and I can find a terrible 10-year period. And there's a lot of them, and you're just picking the last one. Let's say we looked at all of them. How did what was our best 10-year period? Well, our best 10-year period, we did 17.1% a year, better than the S&P 500, which did 16.7. And by the way, that was 15 months ago. The 10 years ending 15 months ago was our best 10-year period. Our worst 10-year period, we were up 3.4% a year. The S&P was down 3.4% a year. So our worst 10-year period was better than the S&P. Our average, the average of every 10-year period was eight and a half. The S&P was six and a half. We're better than the, than the average. So I'd say if we're better than the best, better than the worst, better than the average, and the most recent is bad, what conclusion do you draw? Uh, I don't think it's rational to say that you don't know what you're doing. You know, one of the things that, that, Rich, that people talk about when they evaluate managers, certainly when they evaluate us, is our sharp ratio is low. It's, it's, a, it's a vexing problem. If you think about it from the perspective of the evaluator, the committee or the consultant, it's also a vexing problem for us trying to represent what you've just said is, look, we've got a really successful long-term approach to investing. Um, how, how, how would you deal with that issue? Well, look, the problem is that we have a man, William Sharp, who won a Nobel Prize for coming up with a framework that's very straightforward. You divide return by risk to get a ratio. It makes a whole lot of sense. The problem is we divide the most recent 10-year return or the most recent period of returns by short-term volatility with the academics just accepting that short-term volatility is the same as long-term volatility, even though it's not. And if I 
and sharp is is there's a formula for the sharp ratio but if i just divide returns by standard deviation and i look at our very recent returns and divide it by our very high short-term volatility you would conclude that we have a sharp ratio that's low and lower than the markets and therefore you should avoid us but what are you doing you're dividing long-term returns by short-term volatility, which are not related to each other. Because the short, who cares about the short-term volatility when you're, when you're making a 10-year investment? If you were a trader, makes sense. If your position is one day, then you wanna know, well, how much value can you add in one day by being a day trader and how much volatility are you assuming in that? And you get some ratio, that's where it works. When you try to extend it to someone who's deciding I'm saving for my retirement or I want to leave a legacy for my kids or I want to fund a charitable endowment, um, whatever people save money for long term, the idea that you would even calculate this ratio is a little crazy. And I could just say, what if you did, what if we changed the ratio and look at the average returns that you could compute. And actually, I think that's the way the academic formulation would be made based on what is the what can you expect to get on average and how variable would that be? Well, if I did that and, uh, and I divided our average returns, which are um, eight and a half percent a year by our volatility, which is three and a half percent a year. And this isn't exactly sharp, but it's good enough for our discussion you get a 2.4. If I divide the S&P's six and a half return by its 10-year volatility of 4.3, I get a 1.5. So by that metric, you would say we're geniuses. So two different metrics, one's where you should never touch us, and the other is that we have some gift. And I think it's somewhere in between those. Um, but when you use common sense, methods for risk and you don't spend your time worrying about where the share price is going to go in the short term that's what enables you to buy stocks at low valuations because nobody knows what's going to happen to this coronavirus so sitting here and saying i'm going to evaluate you based on the next quarter's performance i would advise people not to hire all right, Rich, this is really, it's, it's such an important conversation. I'll say for, for now 25 years, we've been in conversations with our clients and with the consulting community about this very issue. And it's, it's interesting as I, I listen to you reflect on the vagaries of the statistical measures that people are, are want to use, it's a reminder of the need to be long-term, ultimately long-term in this, because without it, you're actually doing what you said, you're just gambling. You're absolutely right, Bill. That, that's why there's been so much doubt about value investing, because it's not that people say value investing doesn't work. They say that, but what they mean is statistical value investing, low price to book doesn't work. That's what they really mean because every academic study that was ever done on value was done on low price to book. And low price to book has flaws. 
We all know those flaws. It's always had those flaws. Now, maybe those flaws are more exaggerated today. It's possible, but we don't do low price to book investing. We do research. We try to make our best informed judgment of what the long-term earnings power of the companies that we're looking at will be. And then we buy the cheap ones where we see them cheap and we see that there's downside protection. That's not statistics. So even though we're correlated with low price to book because we're paying attention to price, our denominator isn't a statistic. Our denominator is our best estimate of what the earnings power of the company could be. Rich, thanks so much for visiting with me today and engaging in this next version of our of our podcast series. And um, uh, I'll look forward to the next conversation. And it's always a pleasure. Thanks, Phil.